and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is Lindsay Borgon. Lindsay's book, Tree Thieves, Crime and Survival in North America's Woods is a finalist for the 2023 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize. In this episode, Lindsay and I talk about how life history has played an important role in how she told this story. She also talks about her work as an oral historian. Lindsay starts our episode with a reading from Tree Thieves. One spring day in April 1615, 11 people entered a stone building at the edge of a forest in England's Midlands and took their places in front of an assembled court. The group was there to answer for their crimes. All had stolen wood from the forest, of course, which they had used for things like brewing beer and baking bread. Having been caught, they reported to the Swanamote, a court established for regulating, policing, and conserving the forest. In front of them sat 18 jurors. Surrounding them, 22 commoners, villagers, and farmers watched the day's events. One by one, the accused answered for their crimes, cutting wood from pear and apple trees, lopping branches from a hazel, and in one case, cutting chunks of wood from a tree known as goblin's oak. Inklings of today's timber poaching ripple out from here. The English word forest shares a root for with forbidden, and with the Latin term forest, meaning outside. This makes sense. Forest did not initially refer to a stand of trees or woodland, as it does today, but rather to a parcel of land that had been appropriated in the 11th century by William the Conqueror, as a place where he and his compatriots could go hunting, and where others could pay for the privilege to do likewise. A sort of medieval country club, Forests included more than woodland, and in some cases encompassed farmland, fields, and even entire villages or towns. When a forest was established, strict rules were placed on anyone who happened to live there. In order to preserve trees that could support a strong deer population, for instance, wood would no longer be free for the taking. To counteract these land grants, the 13th century brought the Charter of the Forest, a companion to the Magna Carta, Ushered in after King John, who disafforested land at the behest of wealthy barons who wanted easier access to land held tight by the monarchy, the Charter of the Forest outlined a way way of life for commoners and woodlands and allowed access to the essentials of life, food, shelter, water. Every free man shall adjust his wood in the forest as he wishes, the Charter proclaimed. It was a manifesto for the commons, pushing back against the spread of royal acquisition. By today's standard, the Charter of the Forest is a radical document, standing against the privatization of common land by the powerful, be they royalty or government. The Charter placed limits on use and was one of the first environmental laws in history. It included animal rights and regulated hunting with dogs. Through it, the monarchy was required to return enclosed land to its subjects, Men who had been jailed for forest crimes up until that point were released, provided they they pledged never to wrong the forest again. For centuries, all churches in England were required to read the charter out loud to the public four times a year. 
Through the charter, the forest was defined as a common source of commodities or privileges, known as mast, herbage, marl, turbery, and estover. It guaranteed permission to feed pigs from the forest floor, or mast, to let sheep graze on herbage throughout, and to harvest honey. It granted the right to dig clay and sand, or to marl, to mine coal and peat, or turbery, for fuel, and to build sawmills. The forest thus outlined was a place of refuge, with trees used as sanctuary, as waypoints, as, and as boundary markers. There was an acknowledgement that trees were an integral part of the commoner's life, and the forest was dubbed the poor's overcoat, under which all means of survival could be found, including dead wood or entire trees from which to build houses, furniture, or doors. The charter of the forest also outlined the bounds of Estover, the right to collect firewood and timber for everyday needs. It referred to coppicing, a form of logging that cuts trees down to ground level, encouraging healthy growth. Thank you. So my first question for you is, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, my name is Lindsay Borgon. Uh, I am a writer and an oral historian. I live in Clearwater, BC, just north of Kamloops. Um, And I am a gardener and a dog owner. And yeah, (laughs) all of those fun things. Yeah. So as I said, I was, I've, I've been very excited to uh, chat with you about this book because it's been on my radar for a little while. Um, (laughs) But I would love if you could share a little bit about kind of where the seed for this book started. Yeah. So uh, it came from a news story, a CBC story in 2012 uh, about a tree poaching on Carmona Walbrin on, on the Island on Vancouver Island And uh, at the time, I was a freelance writer, and I was kind of, you know, like I read local news stories, thinking that maybe sometimes they could be built out to magazine features. And this was an example of that for me at first. So I thought, oh, well, I can see this kind of structure in my head of uh, surprising crime and the people who who investigate it and and it definitely did not play out that way (laughs) in the end but that's that's where it started and once I started uh doing interviews and and doing my research I realized it was uh, a very broad story that that wasn't going to fit that I mean like you said it is such it's such a broad story and and there's so much in this book, like when I've when I've described it to people, when I recommend it to people, I always say it's like true crime with trees and science. And I obviously that does not do this book justice, but there's so much to it. And and I imagine it was hard to kind of put boundaries on what you included and then what had to be left out. So how did you manage that? You know, what was essential and what was just like really interesting, but didn't need to be in the book yeah um I had you know my early drafts of the book had a lot more uh history about logging in the Pacific Northwest in particular Northern California um because that is where the poaching cases that I that I follow and where the narrative kind of comes from that's where that's rooted and so I had written a lot of words about like the changing in quotas and the, you know, uh, 
delving into how many board feet were being taken in like 1985 <laughs> and things like that. And I have to say that um, my agent is the one who gets all the credit for just being like, we don't need all this. <laughs> so um, there was a lot that I felt I could have put in for more context that um, that came out. I, you know, I'm a real nerd for history, so I would have had a lot more of that in there, mainly because, you know, I was trying to, through that, I was trying to show how, uh, like, clear-cut logging and corporate greed had really ramped up the amount of logging heading into the timber wars and and how that really impacted uh how that era came to to a close uh and therefore people's attitudes around it but um yeah so I don't know if I have an answer uh but I would say that a big thing that helped me was that my agent actually called and asked me on the phone she was like Lindsay what is this book about and I said tree poaching and she was like that's exactly it so you know from then on I could I was just always answering and making sure that what I was writing was answering the question what is this book about tree poaching it's not about the history of clear-cut logging in northern California even though that feeds into it it doesn't you know we don't have to have 20,000 words on it or whatever (laughs) so that I hope that that answers that in a way you know I think it's hard when you uh, when you spend so much time researching something and when you yeah. enjoy researching, yeah. <laughs> um, it's hard to like know where to pump the brakes and then also to know like what rabbit holes aren't necessarily interesting for a reader just because you found them fascinating. Yeah. And the thing is that you'll also find like after the book come after my book came out, a lot of people who I met at readings or events or, or online, you know, they would say to me or write to me and say, oh, you know, this is like when this happened in, in Northern California. And I'd think, yeah, that was, I had that in there and I took it out. And so you do have to also kind of like hear people's feedback and say, I agree with you, you know, but uh, that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean you did the wrong thing by taking it out. Yeah. If that makes sense. So, cause uh, you know, I really love the, uh, the ancient kind of forest courts and stuff like that. And, and somebody did say to me like, Oh, I wanted so much more of that. And I was like, me too. <laughs> but that wasn't the book I was writing, you know? Yeah. So one of the, I mean, many strengths of this book, I think was the way you approached this obviously very complex and polarizing topic um, through the telling of the stories of the various characters who move in and out of it. And I think the real strength of it is in the nuance, because I think you, I left feeling like there was no real, like, villain or hero in this story. Um, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you approached the telling of the various sides of this story. Yeah. So first of all, the even the, thank you, for that and thank you for for your kind words and I think I think if I had written this book at an earlier time in my life I would not have um I think I would have just been looking for the straight law enforcement uh investigation traditional true crime kind of thing but because I had spent you know in the in the interim of hearing about this theft in 2012 and then actually pitching and selling the book in 2019 that you know that's a big gap and in that time I had spent 
I had spent a lot of time just like reading about the history of poaching and, and realizing that over that in history, this was not simple. So the chances that it was going to be simple now were like nil, you know, <laughs> things had only become increasingly more complicated in all of this. And so I knew that I needed to have that, that the strength of the story was going to come from talking to the poachers. And so I knew that I needed to put in the work to find the right case that um that that would feed it not feed into that but that would that would be the right one I, I I don't know really how to explain that but the one that would have kind of all the interesting elements that I knew were in there within it so you know that the poacher was from a former timber town um that the poacher was actually a specific age so that they had experienced the timber wars and and experience sort of environmentalism in a particular way um you know that they also were maintaining their innocence <laughs> was important to me because you know um I knew that that wouldn't be that hard to be honest a lot of a lot of poachers do maintain their innocence but I knew that this you know that I didn't want a case that was going to be kind of negotiated very early on um and then I just kind of got started doing my 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 field work my foot reporting and interviewing people in in the town of Oric um and and making sure that I was really doing long in-depth interviews with them that took a lot of time and that I was following up and doing many follow-up interviews and and making sure that they they really understood from my questioning and my in our conversations what I was trying to do then when it came time to write um, I actually had this rule that I would only write from one perspective every day <laughs> because I found that when I was writing, you know, on top of all of this, the National Park Service Rangers in Northern California in Redwoods, they were very generous with me with their time and they answered everything and they answered all my emails and all of this. And so I knew when I was writing quotes out from some from poachers like Derek Hughes and Danny Garcia I knew how the park service responded to them. And so I found that my language was getting really, I, I was being pulled into asides all the time, you know, mm -hmm. and I wanted to make sure that I was writing both sides as told to me, as I ex heard them and, and experienced them in a way equally and so it wasn't you know um I didn't want to make I wanted to make sure that I wasn't writing both sides at the same time mm. essentially because I knew that law enforcement had often in in stories about poaching often it was very law enforcement heavy because that's kind of the there there are mechanisms in place to ask for interviews and to ask for access and it is different when you're talking to people uh who have committed crimes right mm. <clears throat> so I wanted to put them on equal footing how did you find the poachers? Was was it a, and was it a challenge to to earn their trust? Because I could imagine if you approach someone and said, "I want to do a book on on poaching," there might be a resistance because obviously they're committing a crime and and they yeah. may be concerned about how to be how they would be perceived. How was that process for you? Yeah, so I think um, there was not a lot of pushback at all, actually. I don't think anyone had ever asked any of them why they had done what they did or about their lives. And so I went, 
you know, I went in person to the town where they all lived. This was pre-COVID. Um, and I had meeting, I had interviews set up with, you know, like local business owners and the leader of the Chamber of Commerce and and stuff like that. And after doing those interviews, they had all said, you know, you should reach out to Danny. You should reach out to Derek. Like, you know, they weren't they weren't making me feel like they would say no. Um, one of the poachers, Derek Hughes, who whose case is really the one that goes throughout the book because Danny Garcia had already been charged and and all of that. He said no at first, which I understood um, because he he was still kind of going through the court system and I think was worried that if he spoke to me, it would be like admitting guilt, right? Mm -hmm. But his mom said yes. I interviewed his mom a few times. Um, I interviewed everyone around him. Um, and basically what happened there was I was interviewing um I, you know I was having a phone call one day with one of the poachers and I had said this fellow's name was uh, Chris Guffey and I said oh you know I've heard uh I've heard people call you the red sorry the redwood bandit and I've heard other people kind of call this group uh the outlaws and like is that fair you know like have you heard this and he said oh yeah and if you want to talk to another outlaw he's sitting right here and um, I was like, uh, okay, is it is it Derek? And he said, yes. And then we all just talked like on speakerphone. They put me on speakerphone and I did the first interview then. And I think, I suppose having spoken to the other folk beforehand helped, you know? Mm -hmm. And he had heard me kind of chatting to his friend. But, you know, something I've been saying about that process uh, to, to people who ask is that I, I was not... I was showing up in town and asking to interview people, but I was not, they were life history interviews, really, you know, like I was doing, sitting down for hour, hour and a half, coming back the next day. And even though I, you know, I said, I'm writing a book about timber poaching and I'm writing a book about kind of like relationships with parks and, and things like that. The fact that I was asking them about their grandparents and their parents and then getting to them and then getting to why they might have committed this crime. I think it was an approach that helped because I wasn't just saying, hi, do you want to talk to me about this thing you did? Yeah. You know? It's like, um, do you want to tell me what it was like growing up here? Um, what did your dad do? <laughs> you know, what did your mom do? Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think that that was part of it. I don't know for sure. It's almost like you'd have to ask them, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. This kind of ties into to my next question, but I mean, I think getting those life histories, it mm -hmm. it really did add so much necessary context to the to the book and and you you can really tell in reading it that you invested so much time in getting to know not just their their life as as timber poachers but yeah the whole yeah. life that led that would have led to that and I think that's where that compassion as a reader yeah. kind of comes in because you can start to be like oh I I get why a person might choose to do this it doesn't seem so far off when you understand the circumstances of someone's life yeah and I you know I think and I thank you and and I think an example of that for me was you know when I first started doing interviews about tree poaching in 2013 I was interviewing investigators and, you know, people involved with the RCMP and national resource officer, sorry, natural resource officers and 
they were never saying this coldly, but they would often say to me like, um, timber, like, like, timber poachers are methods, <laughs> you know, uh, the tweakers go into the forest and do this. And I was like, okay. And frankly, that did bear out to be true. Pretty much all of the timber poachers that I interviewed struggled with drug misuse, hard drug misuse at some point in their life. But when I was talking to Derek about it and he said to me, like, you know, when I was like in the eighth grade and they they prescribed me Ritalin and when I tried meth, I felt like it did the same thing, but like in a different way. And I like, I don't know. I never, I'm not somebody in that cohort, but I really felt for him at that point. Like, I was like, oh my God, like how many people do I know that were given Ritalin? And we know now that that was such a kind of cop out sometimes. Right. So yeah. I, I really, I really felt for him then. And I was like, you know, I don't want to say anymore that timber poachers are meth heads because it's never that simple. Like, yeah. like you're not just a meth head. Right. So, yeah. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, and it, it's that whole, I guess, like, I we see that often, I guess, in true crime books where, you know, you talk to law enforcement and you do, you get a very cut and dry, black and white, this is legal, yeah. this is not legal, and, like, yeah. there's no nuance, yeah. but we know that criminals just don't, like, spring out of the ground, like, it's just, yeah. you know, there's a yeah. whole there's something leads to that situation and we know that about drug use too right like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so many situations come into play uh to lead someone to that place in their life and yeah yeah and i think in the pacific northwest where much of this book takes place i mean it's a it's a it's a part of our lives like i don't think that the environment is unfamiliar to people like the environment that I write about in my book I feel like a lot of people that live in BC or or in other rural areas they'd understand that they understand what I mean when people would say to me like uh Oric is a rundown place and it's full of like you know there's lots of crime there and it's bad and you're thinking well what led it to that mm -hmm. you know and yeah there's there's former timber towns all across the island <laughs> that that people just drive through and they're too afraid to stop. And I don't, um, I don't blame them for that at all, but there's a reason how things got that way. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. So. Um, you, you mentioned when I asked you who you are, that you are an oral historian. Uh, yeah. What does it mean to be an oral historian? Yeah. It means that, uh, I mean, it kind <laughs> of is a job that, that takes all sorts of forms. So, um, uh, I'm about to enter into a contract where I'll be doing kind of more land use, traditional land use studies and, and um, oral history is um, through, through the hard fighting of many Indigenous lawyers and legislatures and, and advocates, um, oral histories are considered to be uh, admissible in court as a, as a legal document. Um, and so uh, often they are uh, oral histories are are used for asserting land title and and claims in that nature. So I've you know I've done contracts where I interview people about how they've used the land and how their grandparents used the land and great grandparents and stories that they've heard and um, on their traditional territories, which is really interesting. Um, I've done longer projects where you know I was I I did a quite a large. Um, dissertation when I was doing my master's where I interviewed uh, 14 
Scottish Antarctic whalers, which was fascinating. And so I interviewed them about um, what their experience was like at the end of the whaling industry in Antarctica in the 1960s. And those types of interviews tend to, you know, they go on to be archived at museums. Um, so oral history, you know, it has all sorts of uses. I, you know, I used it in my book. Um, you can use it to gather testimony or you can use it to uh, simply kind of record your experience for the historical record, um, which was my interest in, in tree thieves. You know, um, I, as I was doing my research and I was in the archives of like the digital archives of Berkeley University and Save the Redwoods League uh, collections and things like that. There were these amazing interviews done by oral historians with like the first rangers, the first legislators, leg legislators that that preserve the redwoods, and there was none from loggers. Mm. And so that was important to me. Yeah, that those be recorded, even if they're not always agreeable. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's I find um I'm I'm kind of like endlessly fascinated by the this like line that kind of ebbs and flows with creative nonfiction where and I think we're at an interesting point with it with oral history because I think for a long time there was so much weight put on historical research, but it was like the kind that you could verify. And I'm using yeah. air quotes oh, yeah. around verify, but you know, like there's yeah. this idea that if it was written on paper it was somehow true, which is yeah. silliness. But and that, um, you know, oral history was somehow not true for whatever mm -hmm. reason. Um, but it seems like maybe we're moving away from that way of thinking. I think it's a very like it's a very colonial way of thinking. Mm -hmm. It obviously, like you said, leaves out voices like the loggers and indigenous people and mm -hmm. women and other marginalized folks. Mm -hmm. Um but you, and your book obviously makes use of of both of these types of research. But yeah. I'd be curious as an oral historian, um, like what are your thoughts on on historical research and the way that we've placed weight on, you know, the the hard research versus you know oral research, hmm. and oral history. Yeah. It's hard because like I so I entered into the field. Uh, relatively late. Like I, I went back to get my master's when I was 30, which, you know, certainly isn't old or anything, but I didn't go right from my undergrad. And so I had had experience already in journalism where I could identify that I was getting things through interviews that I was hearing things through interviews that I'd never heard before. And I wasn't going to find, you know, I wasn't going to find it in an archive or in a book. And, um, I don't, it's a hard line. I don't want to discount the importance of written, the written record and the archived record to, to shine light on history. I think that um, there was a way that history used to be done that just didn't branch out beyond that at all. And I don't even know if it was the historians that didn't believe that, like, I, I find it hard to think that there was just every historian operating <laughs> for the past 50 years was like oral history, not, not true, just experience or whatever. I know there are some people that think that way, but, um, 
you know, I think there's been a lot of hard work from historians behind me or before me that have just really seen a gap and gone for it. And um, I'm in debt to that. At the same time, I think sometimes history has a reputation of being a little bit like rehashing the same thing over and over and over again. And part of me thinks like, yeah, it's because a lot of historians are just using the same documents repeatedly. And that doesn't even mean that there's that like, God, there's things in archives that we have no idea what's out there, you know, but I think that sometimes there's a, there's a reputation for just like narrowing in on one letter, one notebook, one whatever. And oral history offers a way out of that. Yeah. (laughs) I think, you know, yeah. Um, well, I don't know if that answers your, your question. It um, was a very like open question. So okay, I don't know good. if it had a, a clear cut answer. I don't um, know. It's like, I feel very new to it still. Yeah. And I'm still learning a lot. And there's all sorts of questions in oral history of like, you know, in, in North America, they, until very recently, they tended to be very institutional documents. So, um, Whereas in the UK, they were part of a sort of uh, history from below uh, tradition of, you know, working class history, which I think is really interesting. So in in the US, uh, the early days of oral history was really focused on like interviewing people that worked under certain administrations in the White House or or doing oral history interviews related to the founding of companies and the development of companies. Um, or the development of departments, you know, so when I say institutional, that's what I mean, like you're, you're interviewing people that worked in a department or in a place, and you're asking about that experience. Mm -hmm. And um, in in the UK, uh, you know, it, it was, it was seen as part of what they called history from below. So, uh, history from the working class and 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 populations people of color um that that otherwise are not represented in in like legislative documents and and other forms of archival material and in canada we have this really uh interesting um kind of context where oral history is really part of um indigenous history here you know um so that's like a weird uh tangent on the history of oral history but um I do think that we're I do think that we're kind of coming into an interesting age of it basically um where people are really seeing that there's opportunities in asking people about their lives yeah Um, not just where they worked you know yeah yeah um Imagine we can be more than where we work. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Isn't that like, anyway, isn't that like very colonial Yeah, or Western or something to be like, oh, this is about work. Yeah. Um, Which of course, Tree Thieves was about work. So there you go. I'm like kind of feeding into it, but. (laughs) Um, I have one last question for you and I'm wondering what's inspiring the writing you're doing these days. I, I know you were looking for book recommendations on the internet, so I would imagine yeah. maybe there's a new, a new book in the works. Oh God. I mean, I hope so. Um, but I'm very early. St- like I, to be honest, part of the challenge, uh, for this type of work is that, um, 
I mean, if I can be blunt, like, you know, uh, money to do interviews before I even know what the book is about. Mm -hmm. Um, because I try not to, um, I spend a lot of time thinking about what something might really be about before I even pitch it. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I'm at, I'm trying, you know, I've been doing a lot of kind of grant proposals and things. Uh, and I've been focusing on um, community land management and, and sort of the potential for um, communities to buy land, buy back land, either from private, private ownership or from, from government management um, and running it on a, on a small scale for community benefit. Um, and I have, I have some ideas on where that might focus in what community, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure yet. So, um, I'd like to write something a bit more like tree thieves was very ambitious, but you know, I'd love to just go longer and more. And now that I know I can do this word count, I'd like to push myself and try and do more and, get more into the history of these things and I'm really interested in enclosures and um, what they call fortress conservation that was a big part of tree thieves Mm. is looking at how um, we've managed conservation until this point as like setting apart nature and humans and how there are there's like a real grassroots movement to to undo that process and to say it may have conserved land but to what end Um, and did it did it steamroll over things like traditional land rights and and like community and identity and where you are in family and so um that's that's what I'm hoping to write about next is taking down those walls that was Lindsay Borgheim Lindsay is the author of Tree Thieves Crime and Survival in North America's Woods which is a finalist for the 2023 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also, of course, find us on social media, on Instagram and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Megan Fenya-Jones. Megan is the author of The Program, which is a finalist for the 2023 Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.